thanks guys. Uh, we're turning to Luke chapter 8 this evening, and immediately we're coming to a group of verses that pose some really interesting uh, things and uh, questions, I suppose. Um, as a pastor, husband, father, um, I have a dread, an absolute dread, something that genuinely is going through my head as I put my, my head down on the pillow at nights. I have a dread about hindering other people's talents. Uh, whether that's here in the church as a pastor, where I start micromanaging people and say, no, well, I, I'm, I'm the guy who gets paid to do it. I have to do it. And I, and I stop other people's talents from growing. That's a really dangerous thing. But even as a husband and a father, I have a responsibility to the women in my life, to my wife, to my daughters, to make sure I don't hinder their talents. So I, I have often gone about critiquing my views, the place of tradition, the thrust of my theology, uh, the truth about my prejudices, being honest about my prejudices. And I keep coming back to a very simple and very important truth. If the Lord has given someone gifts, I better be very cautious about denying people the chance to exercise those gifts. More than that, I need to ensure that the woman in my life, my, my wife, my daughters, have every encouragement from me to be what God has called them and equipped them to be. If I want to claim the title of head of the house, head of the family, which I find is an argument that comes in handy quite often sometimes, but if I actually want to claim that and live up to that title... It boils down to the fact that God then has called me to ensure that people living under my roof thrive spiritually. That might look differently in everyone's house because not everyone is gifted the same. But if I'm going to take up the mantle of head of house, then it's on me to make sure the people in my house thrive spiritually. A major part of my life then as a husband, as a father, is devoted and given over to caring for, nurturing, and encouraging the women in my life and developing the giftedness in them as young believers that they are. Because the reality is that they may not be the only ones who give an account for what they have done with their lives. If I am then the head of the house, the leader of the family, I too may be asked about what I did with their gifts. I would like to be able to say to a God who knows and sees everything and knows my heart, to stand before him and honestly say, I try to cultivate rather than hinder. A talent is a terrible thing to waste. If we're being honest though, this is not always what Christians have taught. It is not often what Christians have practiced, but it is what Christ modeled. Let's read some of these verses. Uh, first, one to three. Soon afterwards, he went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. He's preaching the gospel. Praise God. 
and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. I don't know if you've often thought of Joanna and Susanna being Bible names, but there they are. I don't know how much you can tell me about these women. Probably not an awful lot, because this is pretty much all we know about them. But they walked with the Lord. They were there with the twelve. Do you remember when Christ was in Samaria and he was at the well and he met this woman who had had this, she had all these husbands in her past and then the man that she was living with wasn't her husband and Jesus starts to talk about them. Do you remember that part of the story then whenever she's going back into the town to, to, to like just, she was amazed at what Christ had been telling her. And as the disciples are, are coming out, they kind of pass each other as they're coming out of, the, out of the, the city gates. And it says that they marveled. They marveled that Jesus was talking to her. It wasn't because, oh, they knew the past. They didn't know her. It was the fact that it was a woman. For them, that was something to marvel at. <gasps> Peter, what, what, what do you make of that? I don't know, Nathan. Uh, Simon, Simon what, what do you think? Beats me. He's talking to a woman. Aye, in public. And yet Luke here is making the point of letting us know not only were women part of the crowd that were following Christ, they were actively involved. They were told that women were attracted to this message of compassion and attracted to the leader, just like everyone else was. And yet, as you go through, Luke will make this point time and time again. He'll remind us that out of everyone who was at the cross when Christ was crucified, the women were the ones who stayed the longest. They weren't scared. They didn't care what people saw. They didn't care what people thought about them. They were the ones who didn't run away. It was the woman who were first to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning. They were the ones who went. Again, they didn't care what other people thought. They wanted to be there. They were the last to go. They were first to the back. And history has proven and statistics bear it out that when it comes to church involvement, even still, Men are outnumbered by women. It's always the women who outnumber the men in church involvement. Unfortunately, that just seems to be the way it is. Single women outnumber single men on the mission field seven to one. So if you know a single guy, ship him out to the mission field because that's where the women are. So we're not surprised then when we see our Lord embracing a variety of followers and he allows women to be major contributors to that. And it's strange because we know even from the temptation that Satan even knew. Listen, Jesus, if you're hungry, you just speak the word and stones turn into bread. You don't need anyone's help. You don't need financially being supported. You don't need handouts, Jesus. So why would his followers need anything? 
I've lost count of the number of Bible college graduates I've met who are setting off on mission or, or church ministry in, in some capacity. And people come alongside them and offer help, and they're like, are you trying to say that Jesus won't help me? Are you saying that I don't have enough faith? Okay. They're just trying to help. They're trying to get involved. It's almost like they're insulted that you're, you're criticizing their faith. And yet Jesus models a different thing altogether. He allows those who have been touched and impacted by his ministry, who have been forgiven, who have been healed, to be connected in with the work and to partner with him. And I love just how Luke takes a paragraph right at the start of chapter and say, yeah, and by the way, the women were as much involved as anyone else. And then we get to the parable of the sower and the seeds. Now, I've preached this through this passage a number of times, and even not that long ago, so I'm not going to get bogged down into it, although it is one of my favorite parables. Parables, generally, though, are so important. They're, they're one of the central components to Christ's ministry. In fact, one-third of all of, rec- of Christ's recorded teachings are parables, a third. So it's important. The word parable simply means to put alongside. That's what a parable is. It is a, a very simple picture, a very simple story that's put alongside a more complicated spiritual truth. So the idea of all these stories that Jesus tells us is not to entertain us. It's not just uh, some idle chit-chat before you get to the main part of the sermon. The idea is that if Christ is trying to teach a, a complicated, ethereal truth, put a simple practical story beside it, and then say, okay, if you can get this, right, well then that's really just what this is here except a spiritual version of it. And so you put it beside it and say, look, if you can get what's familiar, it'll help bridge the gap to what's unfamiliar and what's maybe a wee bit more uh, ethereal. That's why context is so important. Sometimes people like to pull every single little detail from a parable. But sometimes you kind of go a wee bit too deep. Not everything is teachable. Not everything is applicable. Because honestly, between you and me, really, if you want to get to the heart of a parable, you just go to the verses beforehand and a couple of verses afterwards. Because generally speaking, they'll tell you what's happening. Because that's the idea. The story is just put alongside this main spiritual truth. Parables are not there for doctrine. They're not necessarily so precise for that purpose. Because it's only half of the equation. It's put alongside something. Make sure when you read parables that you anchor the story in the truth that it is put alongside. Make sure you put it beside the truth that it's trying to point us to. We've talked a couple of times in the series already about making sure that we are faithful to the Word and trust the authority of the Word. Right? Well, the context of the Word is just as important. And so what we can see is that Jesus is an excellent storyteller. It's what drew people in. It's why he was able to get illiterate people in. It's why men and women and children wanted to follow him. And they took packed lunches of loaves and fishes and and just followed him out through towns and fields onto hillsides or onto fishing boats or crossed around over the sea to get to where he was. Because he had a way of putting things across. 
And so a great crowd, it's always a great crowd. And there's gathering and people from town after town came to him. He said in a parable, so went out to sow a seed. And as he sowed, some fell among the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock as it grew up. It withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Some fell into the good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's, that's the sermon. Now, I know what you're thinking, Jeff, if your sermon was that long, we'd all be flying. Well, we know from Mark 4, the parallel account, that uh, the disciples, it, Jesus pretty much turns to the disciples, and they're all kind of going, What, what was that? And Jesus sort of goes to say, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, guys, if you don't get this, there's no way you're going to get the other stuff. And so in verses 9 to 15, he explains the parable to them. Let me just read verse 10. Verse 10 says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. This is going to be the theme of what I want to sort of really draw out is about how we hear. Okay, that's really going to be the, what we're going to be pulling out from a couple of things here tonight, how we hear. See, the reason that Jesus taught in these stories, these placed alongside analogies, these parables, is two reasons. Number one, it's to reveal the truth. But the second reason is to conceal the truth. To reveal the truth to the hearts that are open to receive it. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And yet to conceal it or to hide the truth from those whose ears are closed, whose hearts are hardened. In other words, he's explaining something that's happening right now in church. He's, ha he's explaining something that happens in this room every single Sunday at half ten and half six every single Sunday. So you might just want to listen up because this might just explain a couple of things for you. You see, he's saying that if you come and you listen to God's word with a heart that wants to learn and wants to grow, the word of God like a seed will be planted in your heart, will germinate and will grow and the truth you hear will drive deeper down into the soil and you will bear more fruit. But what he's also saying is that if you arrive in the church and you sit on the seat and your head's a million miles away, you're thinking about the argument and the fight that you had with the kids before you got here or, or, or about how your husband, he still hasn't put that stupid laundry away. And blah, 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 blah. Or, or, or you're thinking about how, how busy your schedule is next week and you're thinking about that and you're thinking, oh, it's still only five past seven with another half hour that's to go. What's happening is you'll get a couple of nice wee stories. You might pick up one or two wee things along the way. But honestly, it's not going to make any difference. Because the heart that you have, how you listened to the Word of God, how you received it, impacts how much fruit you're going to bear. And I'll be honest, I... I, I going to say I used to be. I still can be very critical of myself when I preach. I 
I am very critical of myself when I preach. Uh, and especially whenever there's times where I preach my heart out and I give it my all and then everyone just kind of falls out past and you just go, oh, no one got saved after that. Well, I can't do any. Oh, man. And you get hard on myself. I get hard on myself and I beat myself up. And I understand that I, I've still got so much to learn about my craft. I've got so many bad habits that I kind of ha- I do whenever I preach. For everyone you can name, I can name at least three more. So I know that. There, I've still a lot to go in my craft. But Jesus' line here gives us a, a bigger reason. What he's saying here is the gospel, if clearly presented, okay? So if clearly presented, the, the, the gospel, if clearly presented isn't to blame. The message is good. The seed is good. But if people don't respond, it's because they're not listening right. Now, this is where I normally spring off from where I normally teach this. Spend a lot of time going through the different types of soil and how it reflects on on people and religious encounters. And people have written whole books and preached whole sermons on it. I'm going to just give you four quick bullet points here, or four pictures of how people listen to the gospel, how people listen to the word of God. Okay, so all four soils are people who are unsaved, different types of people who are unsaved. And, and, and verse 12, we have the picture of the path. These are the people who are, hear the gospel, and they're totally unresponsive. Jeff, I don't have time for that nonsense. Get out of my face. I don't want to hear it. I just don't want to hear it. And we all know people like that. Verse 13 is the rocky soil. This seed can spread up really quickly, but it's shallow. There's no depth. The sun withers it away. And so they receive the word with joy. They, they hear the gospel. The response is very emotional. And they go, yeah, church, Christians, yeah. And they're going to run around going, yeah. And they get involved really quickly. They spread up and they're involved and they're doing stuff. But the problem is, that's the response to everything. They're like, oh, something over here. Oh, 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 there's something over here now. Oh, oh, uh, uh, and the response to everything is, yeah, whoa, this is the best thing ever. Oh, my goodness, it's amazing. Do you know what they're like? Have you ever put Mentos into a bottle of Coke? Okay, that's pretty much what it's like. Okay, you kind of put the seed goes into the life and they go, yeah, and then it just fizzles out and then it all goes flat and it just shrivels away. As soon as things go, get a wee bit rough, well, I didn't sign up for this. And we talked a wee bit this morning about how, Jesus, you didn't meet my expectation. It's not what I thought it was going to be. I'm disappointed. I'm walking away. And the, it's the shallow heart and they're not with us anymore. They're not in the church anymore because they've moved on to the next new thing that excites them. Verse 14, we have the thorns. This is the crowded heart. These are people who hear the, word, hear the gospel. They like it, but they never make a clean break with the world. And so their heart's very crowded, and ultimately that life gets choked out of them then. They have just enough of Jesus to make themselves unhappy in the world, and they have just enough of the world to make themselves unhappy in Christ. And they get choked trying to live two lives at the same time. 
and they are the most miserable of any of the people that were, are up there on the screen. And they're kind of wavering back and forth, not happy in the world, not happy in church, and they're choked up by cares and riches and pleasures, and, and it can't last, and it doesn't last, because as verse 14 says, they go their own way, not God's way. Then in verse 15, there's the good soil. People who hear well, and the roots go down, and it takes a hold, and, and, and eventually there's a harvest. They bear fruit, and that's what the sower of the seed wanted all along. He's not concerned about the seed that goes on the path. It wasn't supposed to go on the path. It was just something that happened. It happens. He knows the seed isn't going to grow there. He knows the seed's not going to last on the rocky soil. He knows it's not going to last in among the thorns. He knows that. He, he, but he was sowing the seed, and he was aiming for the good soil. He was trying to find the good soil every time. That's his focus. He knows that that's the soil that's going to produce good fruit. The sower, is, his goal is not just to empty the bag of seed. His goal is not just to, I need to get rid of all this, so just fire it anywhere. His goal is to produce fruit. He wants the seed to grow. He wants to produce fruit. And the Bible says that it's by their fruit that you know them. That's why these other ones aren't really Christians. They, they take an emotional response. They take, they can, but when they don't bear fruit, it's not real. But the good soil produces fruit. That's how you know it's real. Now, do you know why Jesus is telling them this story? Why he, 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 he's addressing this big crowd and saying, look, some of you are going to get it, some of you aren't going to get it. That's how it is. He's trying, I, I believe he's trying to say, don't get caught up in, in crowd numbers. Don't get caught up and preoccupied with filling seats and filling arenas with people. Don't be preoccupied with how many people you are reaching because there's always going to be people who just don't get it. There's always going to be people who will have an emotional response, but it's not going to be real. He's telling the disciples, he's telling the crowd, listen, the part of the kingdom you need to understand is it's about producing fruit. It's not just about having the show and saying, look how big we are, look how many people there are, look how much seed was sown. It's saying, no, no, look at the harvest. Look at how many people actually responded and are growing and are bearing fruit. That's the priority. That's the focus. It's not just about the sowing of the seed. It's about wanting to grow fruit. And I believe he's saying to his disciples, that there will be so many opportunities in your life to preach the gospel. Don't lose sleep over the seed that lands on the ground. It's an occupational hazard. It just happens. Focus growing the fruit. According to Christ's math, 75% of the seed that's sown doesn't bear any fruit. 50% will look like it might do, but it won't. But that's okay. Because according to verse 8, the, that 25% bears fruit, but it bears a hundredfold. What he's saying is, even if only one in four respond, it's still worth it. And there's so many Christians who say, I keep trying. 
I keep talking to people, uh, and why aren't people responding? Why aren't people getting saved? It's so frustrating. It's so hard. Listen, but when you get that, those ones who do respond, it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort. Hear the word. Hear it. People will hear the word, and they'll respond in different ways. So let's go on. Not just hearing the word, but those who hear the word need to have a response then of sharing the word. Verse 16, no one after lighting a lamp come, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So, so listen to that. Hear the word, and if you hear well, share the word. Verse 18, take care how you hear. Oh, I was supposed to, I forgot. I was going to bring one of the wee candles. I, I, when I was in Israel, I, I got one of the little clay pots when I was in Nazareth, and they were sort of giving them out for everyone who went on the tour. Um, so I'm, I'm sure it, it's, it's, a, it's an original from 2,000 years ago. But it, it's, it's a replica of, 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 of it. It's, it's still made of clay, um, but it's not 2,000 years old. And it's, you know, got the wee wick and the light. You, don't, you daren't hide it under anything that's made of anything flammable because it, the whole thing would just go up. It would be dangerous to hide it. It would also be very counterproductive. If you have it lit in, in a dark room, if you have it lit for a feast of celebration, why would you hide it? What benefit is it having the light if you're not going to use the light? It's like putting on a torch and then putting the torch in the cupboard. But what benefit is it to anyone then? And this is the basic principle here. But notice what Jesus has said again. Be careful how you hear. This is the principle that the parables have been put alongside to. You ever know someone who has a selective hearing? Women are nudging their husbands. You could be calling them all day and they don't respond and then, you know, Ruth sticks the kettle on. I'm going, oh dear, you know, are you putting the kettle on? Jog on, you know. <laughs> but Jesus is talking about how people respond to the gospel. We share the light of Christ, the light of life that shines into the darkness. So be careful how you respond to the gospel. We talk often about the cost of following Christ. There's a cost to salvation. It's freely given, but there's a cost because you have to be prepared to put the old life away. If we seek to respond to the gospel, we have to let the light shine. So be careful how you respond. There is a cost. In the same way that good seed and good soil, the expectation is for it to bear fruit. So too, someone with the light of life in them must shine it out. So be careful what you do with the message that Christ has given. Be careful what you do with the gospel because it demands an appropriate response. So be careful how you hear. Because if you've received that light, 
don't try to hide it. Don't try to make it look like there's, you don't have any candles lit. Don't try to look like you're, you're, you're sort of holding it back and saying, Yo, yes, I've got this, but I, I don't want anyone else to see. If you have that light, you've got to let that little light shine. And I was about to play a cover of that song, uh, This Little Light of Mine. It's been played nonstop in my house all this week. Uh, Sophie and Bethany love it, uh, especially the Bruce Springsteen version of it uh, from, from The Point in, in Dublin last year. They found it on YouTube and they found it uh, by asking Alexa, and uh, it's just in my house constantly. But we're going to be closing with that song, so I'm not going to uh, bother with it. It's an earworm. You'll, you'll have it. You'll be humming it down on the way home and everything. It's brilliant. But in that, Jesus is re-emphasizing his point. A sower who wants to see fruit grown has to sow. A person who has received the light needs to let it shine. And here's what's so interesting. Jesus said, or it'll be taken from you. what does he mean here? Does he mean your salvation is going to be taken, that your light's going to be taken from you? You could argue that in Revelation, you know, there, there's, there's, that, there's that challenge that goes to the church in Ephesus and look, listen, you need to sort yourselves out or I'm going to take your candlestick away. I'm going to put the lights out. Maybe Jesus is, is pointing to that but I don't think it means that he's going to take anyone's salvation. And we know that, that because the rest of Scripture lets us know that that's not something that can happen. So we know that Scripture helps us to interpret Scripture. So what does this mean? I think it means that if you're the kind of Christian who likes attending church, that's good. That's good. But if you're the sort of Christian who accumulates the Word of God, and breathes it in, and breathes it in, and sucks it up, and never exhales it. If you don't do anything with all that information and all that God has given you, the first point is it's counterproductive. Why have a light if you're not going to let it shine? But the second point is you'll stop enjoying it. You'll stop wanting to receive it and its fruitfulness. That shine will be taken away from you. You ever meet someone who's so godly and you can see them shining? You can see, there's just that personality. There's just that character, the conversation, the way they talk. And it's just so beautiful and it's so godly and it's so wonderful. And it means that everybody wants to be to visit them. Everyone wants to go and talk to them. Everyone is so happy when they come over and talk to you. They've got to shine. If you don't let your light shine, I think that's the shine that goes away. That attractiveness for Jesus. That effectiveness to draw other people towards the light. And you'll start saying things like, oh, sure, it's just the prayer meeting. I don't need to go. I'm busy. And I have other things to do. It's no real big deal. A small group, I don't need to go to small groups. Do I? It's not that big a deal. 
actually it is. And one of the scariest things for me as a pastor is that you look at people and you can see people's eyes and you're trying to talk to them and you're trying to share with them and you're trying, and you can see that they were shining so bright and they were so enthusiastic, but then they stopped getting involved. They, they stopped showing up. And all that sort of thing that you saw about godliness, you just, it disappears and you think, that's so sad. They've lost their shine. They've lost that, that quality that drew people towards Christ in them. If you don't let it shine, God will say, right, if you're not interested in shining, that's how it will be. Give away what you've received. If God is speaking to you, not only take that for yourself, but share it for the sake of others. Sow that seed. Bear fruit. Fruit that can nourish other people. Feed other people. Shine your light that they may be guided. You imagine athletes, some of these athletes have to eat incredible amounts of calories, right? Tonight the Super Bowl is on, and um, I, I normally stay up to watch it. I doubt I'll be up tonight to watch it. But these guys, these athletes are like 1% body fat, and, and they eat maybe three, 4,000 calories a day. Why do they do that? It's because they're exercising so much, and, and, they, and the, their fitness regime demands so much of them. But what happens to a lot of these football players, these American football players, after they stop playing, they retire maybe in their early 30s, 33, 34, 35. But because they've been eating four or 5,000 calories a day for the last 10 years, 20 years, they keep eating that same amount. That's their routine. That's their, but they're not exercising the same way. So they just becomes quite unattractive. It becomes unhealthy. So too spiritually. If we keep receiving what God has given us, we don't exercise those gifts. We don't exercise what God has given us, what God has called us to do. It's spiritually very unhealthy. So hear the word. Share the word. Let's finish off. Verses 19 to 21. Obey the word. Because then his mother Jesus, his mother Mary, and his brothers come to him. But they could not reach him because of the crowd. He was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And do it. This passage can be very unnerving when you first read it, especially if you come from a, a Roman Catholic background. Uh, first of all, because it says that his brothers were there. Because in the Catholic Church, you have the dogma called the perpetual virginity of Mary. That Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus. We agree with that. Scripture bears that out. Scripture testifies to that. But the, the, the Catholic Church will go on to say that she remained a virgin afterwards. But that's something that the Bible does not say but rather that Joseph and Mary had other children. So Jesus had brothers. He had uh, other family members or half-brothers. 
And that can shock some people. The second shock comes in verse 21, because that's really interesting. Why is it so interesting? Because for, for Roman Catholics, it seems that Jesus doesn't share the veneration towards his mother that they do. Oh, Mary, so highly favored, worthy of worship. And Jesus saying, sling your hook, mom. Not that bothered. You're not the most important thing going on. And for a lot of Catholics, putting this text in front of them makes it very interesting because it seems that they like his mom a lot more than he does. And when you look at what Jesus says about his mother and what he says about his brothers, maybe, just maybe then, you don't need to talk to Mary to get Jesus to do something for you, like the Vatican would teach. Because that, that's what they say. Like, if you really need to get something done, like if it's a really big, like, tier one num- like need, if you, you need to go straight to management, talk to Mary. She'll get her son to do it. Because mums know how to get their sons to do stuff. All right, and maybe again, wives, you can nudge your husbands and say, yep, your mother still has more sway over you than I do. (laughs) But that's what they teach. But what I see Jesus saying here is, I I do acknowledge my family ties, my, my physical, biological family. But there is a higher emphasis here on the spiritual family. Here's my family. Those who hear the word of God and decide that they're going to open their hearts and open their ears. The seed is going to fall on soil that bears fruit with patience. The people who are not ashamed to let that light shine out from them. Those are my people. That's my family. And this passage is pointing to a wonderful new element that he's introducing to the kingdom that Christ is bringing. More than just a spiritual nation will Israel be, but rather there is a spiritual family, the church. You and I may have a different ancestor. You may have different parents. You may have different grandparents and all the rest of it. We may have different ways of relating to our parents. Maybe you don't have a keen sort of relationship with parents or grandparents, or maybe you don't really know who, who's in your background or who's in the family tree. When we come together as members of this church, we say, you're my brother. You're my sister. We're family. I'm choosing to come alongside you and worship God here. I'm choosing to to meet with our Heavenly Father alongside you, and you're choosing to come and do that alongside me. Yes, I've got a biological family up in Balamina. I have a family of outlaws, sorry, in-laws. But church, listen, you're my family. You're my family. The people in this church will get the same loyalty and devotion from me as my own sisters can expect. The same determination to keep promises as they will have. And even though I don't speak to my sisters every single day, and even when we do, sometimes it's just because I want to wind them up with some silly post on on WhatsApp. That's family. 
And because we are adopted into the same family through Christ, we choose to make this church our spiritual home. Then I am your brother. And you're my brother. You're my sister. We're family. And so there's that loyalty and that devotion. You have it. I will keep my promises to you with the same determination. And if you're lucky, I might even wind you up with some silly WhatsApp nonsense. Because that's what brothers do. (laughs) And I'm your brother. And you're my brother. You're my sister. And you see, to Jesus, this isn't just church talk or what Ian Paisley Jr. sounded like when he was on. Brother! No, it's more than that. It's a call to a certain way of interacting together, a way of being. If you hear the word and you seek to respond correctly to it, you want to share it and you want to live it out, it's going to impact how you live. And James says we need to be hearers, more than just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Because if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we must replicate that. Don't hide the light that's in you. Don't hide and keep that seed to yourself. But as verse 21 declares, you've got to do it. You've got to live it out. It's got to be real in your lives. It can't just be an intellectual understanding of the gospel. It can't just be a head knowledge of how we're supposed to be. It's got to be real. And Jesus says, and you do that, then you're my brothers. You're my sisters. That's his words. That's what he's saying. Listen, I pray, I pray that we can make this church family a place where seed is sown. And we see it landing on good soil and souls are being saved and people are bearing fruit. I pray that this family shines out for the world to see that people down in Newton Arts or Carador or Ballywalter or Donagadi, Malaw, wherever you happen to be, they can see this church and they can say, there's something happening there. I can see it in them. And I pray that this is a family that will love and cherish and honor one another too as family as we live out the word of God together. So my question is this. Were you listening? Were you listening? Did, did you hear what's been said tonight? Did you hear what God has been saying to you from this? Then the challenge is live it out. Or are you going to be like the other types of soil when the seed is sown and the call to grow and the call to bear fruit is, is issued? We say, well, you know what? There's too many other things happening. Or go, yeah, that sounds really good. And then tomorrow it just, it's, it's gone again. How well were you listening tonight? Not because there's going to be a quiz or anything like that, but simply because that's what Scripture wants us to know. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. going to ask the, the musicians to come up uh, and we're going to sing our last piece and then I'll, I'll close in prayer after that.
pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for this challenge that's been put before us, Lord, that those who have heard tonight, that they might hear and that we might respond. Lord, I pray that you'd be working in our hearts, Lord, that maybe more of us will have heard than what we normally do. But Lord, we pray that we would let our light shine. Lord, such a wonderful God. All the things that you've done for us, Lord, how can it not change how we look and change how we speak and change how we act? Lord, help us to go into work this week and go in and talk to our friends and our family this week. Lord, and may they see us shine. And we pray. I pray, Lord, that we will have heard you well tonight. And we ask this in your name. Amen.